Good morning, church. Um, what a blessing it is for us to still be able to hear God's word read and explained to us, even throughout the lockdown over online means. Um, if I haven't met you before, my name's Caleb, and I'll be bringing us the Bible reading for today. Um, so we'll be reading from 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 24. So that's 1 John 3, 16 to 24. Uh, if you have your Bibles there, I'd really encourage you to open them up um, and follow along with me as I'm reading. Um, and we'll be starting from verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. This is the word of our Lord. Well, good morning, church. We're once again back meeting online again. But isn't it great that we can still be growing around God's word together? Uh, online, even though we're not doing it physically. Now, first of all, I just want to give um, a big thank you uh, for all of you for submitting uh, so many good questions on our Slido page for our Q&A later today. Uh, questions like, is it less glorifying to God if I'm a mother, but I choose to return to work to keep serving the church in other ways? Uh, is there anything wrong about being a full-time father? How many children should we have? If God's command is to multiply and fill the earth, is it selfish just to have one or two children? Well, we'll be having our Q&A uh, session online after our service today. Uh, but for our sermon today, we'll be looking more broadly about how we are to be shaped by the gospel and how this gospel shaping can help us make decisions and answer some of these questions that we might have about life and about family. And so, as we look more broadly at what being shaped by the gospel actually means, uh, let us remind ourselves of what is so distinctive, what is so important about this very gospel, uh, that our whole lives and even our families should be shaped by this gospel. Well, the gospel, first and foremost, is good news. Good news of what God has done for us. See, when it comes to religion, when it comes to human wisdom and logic, uh, uh, when we're talking about how we're supposed to be a good person, how we're to reach God or reach heaven or whatever it is, well, the general wisdom is that we must be good. We have to do good, live the right way, do the right things, say the right words, go through the right rituals, and then you'll eventually climb your way towards the target. But see, the gospel, the gospel throws that out the window. Because God's words say flat out that we are sinners. We have all turned away from the all-powerful God who deserves glory and deserves worship. 
And because of that, because we have turned our backs on him, we deserve God's judgment. And there is nothing that we can do about it. But the good news is this, that instead of having us to somehow work our way back to God, God has come down to us. Jesus, God's own son, enters into our messy world. He lives that perfect life that we ought to live. And Jesus dies on our behalf as the perfect sacrifice. The sacrifice paying the penalty that we deserve so that we can be made right with God through receiving this gift from Jesus. Right, that, that, that's a super short summary in a nutshell of the gospel. But that is the bedrock. That is the foundation of how we are to live our lives, right? If we have accepted this wonderful good news. If we truly follow Jesus as not only our saviour, but also as our king. And so how does that shape our lives? Maybe a question we need to ask ourselves is, has the gospel even shaped our lives so far? Or how much has the gospel shaped our lives? Well, I'm going to suggest three main ways that the gospel should be shaping our lives. And the first is this, that we must let God's word be our ultimate authority. Now, the world tells us that we are to make meaning for our lives from within. And so we are thrown this way and that by all these people and all these different voices with polar opposite views and wildly different foundations and opinions. Uh, sometimes these views can be militant even in the way that they are shoved in our face. And so you're called out, your voice is cancelled out if you disagree with these voices. And so it can be quite hard, right, for us to not bow down to this pressure and simply just agree with all these voices that we hear. But here's the thing. If we are people who follow Jesus, if we hear, God's, if we hear God speaking to us as we read his words in the, in the Bible, then we know there is only one voice that we can rely on when all others are clamoring over one another for our attention. Now, earlier this year, we already saw from 2 Timothy 3, at the beginning of this year, when we went through our value series, that the scriptures we hold in our very hands is God's own inspired word. The ultimate author of the Bible is none other than the unchanging, all-powerful creator of us and the world that we live in. The one who has ultimate authority to govern, to define what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. And so if we are to live gospel-shaped lives, we need to place God's voice as the one who ultimately has authority over us. The, ones, the one voice that we turn to whenever we're in doubt, whenever we hear different conflicting voices. Now this is something that's getting increasingly harder and harder to do, isn't it? As our world moves from agreeing upon the biblical principles and values as, as, as good and proper, and now towards being seen as outdated, sometimes even oppressive. And so we need to stand firmly in trusting the scriptures as God's inspired word. We need to trust that the God who authored the Bible is good. Our God who knows what is best for us and best for the world that we are to witness to. And that means inevitably when we come across these views and voices, we need to be so immersed, so shaped by the word that we can not only discern when these other voices are in contradiction to God's word, but we need to know how to answer them, how to challenge them and correct them. That's the first way that we live gospel-shaped lives. We need to put our foundation 
we need to be uniquely hearing the voice of God as our ultimate authority. But see, listening to God's voice in our decisions uh, doesn't simply mean we're following a bunch of rules and that's all there is to it, right? Because as we do this, as we obey, as we listen, we must be motivated by an ever-deepening love of God. Now, last week, Pastor Iggy reminded us that when it comes to raising kids, getting them to obey rules, getting them simply to fix their behavior doesn't actually achieve the outcome that we want. Because the law cannot produce the love for God that is actually at the heart of worship. That is at the heart of discipleship. And the same goes for us. A lot of the time, it's, it's easy for us to sort of reduce our Christian faith down to, well, what are the rules? Just tell me the laws. Just tell me what I need to do and what I need to keep away from. But we need to remember that what God wants of us is to love him with all our heart, mind, and soul. And that means as we hear God's voice of authority over our lives, we aren't just treating the Bible as a rule book. Rather, being shaped by the gospel means that we are being transformed, not simply through behavior, but deep down in our hearts and in our minds. Over time, we, we learn to love what God loves. We hate what God hates. It's like how the more you get to know a good friend, as you sit down with them, you spend quality time with them, listen to them, eventually you get to a point where you understand them so much that buying a gift for them is really easy. You don't even need them to tell you what they might want for their birthday or whatever because you've understood them inside out so well. And so if we love God in this way, if we spend time in his word truly soaking it in, and then even if there are things in the Bible that aren't directly and explicitly addressed, then we know how to behave. We know what to do, right? Because we've allowed his word to, for us to really know God's character, his principles of righteousness, grace, and mercy. And then we can allow all these principles guide us even on decisions and questions that aren't explicitly addressed in the Bible. And we'll look at some examples later on. Uh, but also, not treating our relationship with God as simply meeting a bunch of rules means our attitude shouldn't simply be, what is the bare minimum? What are the legal requirements that I must fulfill to be considered a Christian or, or being in a Christian family? Now, imagine sitting down with your wife or husband during a romantic date night. Uh, and you hear them say, look, what we need in our marriage right now is more clarity. Just give me a bunch of rules that you want me to follow. Tell me the boundaries. What do you consider unfaithfulness? What do you consider the bare minimum that I should be doing to tick off this contractual marriage agreement that we have? So that I know what I need to do, the bare minimum, to stay married with you. Now, that won't do, would it? At the core of a committed, healthy relationship is actually a desire to love that person. It's not just about fulfilling contractual obligations, though, of course, over time, you'll grow to learn that there are things that you definitely should do and, and don't do in your relationship out of love, but it goes way beyond that. Because in a healthy relationship, you're looking for new and creative ways to love your spouse. It's about an attitude, not just looking to do the bare minimum, but to self-sacrifice yourself to give yourself for the benefit of the other person and so how much more when it comes to loving our god 
our God who created us, who loved us before us, before we were even born, who knew us before we were even born. Our God who gave us his perfect son to save us as our sacrifice of atonement. How much more should the gospel shape us? Not simply looking to pay the minimum amount that we ought to pay, but to find more and more ways to please God, to keep growing in how we're serving and loving God. And so how can we best please God with our families? Well, I think here are a couple of questions to help us think about this better. And the first question is this, what is best for God's kingdom? What is best for God's kingdom? See, now, if we've understood that we've been snatched from hell and have been given access to God's kingdom, eternal life through the blood of Jesus, then of course we'd be driven to serve God's kingdom, right? We'd want to work towards seeing God's kingdom grow and grow and grow. If we've received such grace and love for Christ, then it's natural for us to be light and salt of the earth, to do what we can to show and share this grace to those around us so that more can come to know Jesus, right? Now, an illustration that's really stuck with me over the years is uh, one I heard about paying taxes. Because when we fill out our tax returns, it's uh, tax time is coming up as well, isn't it? Uh, I think we're all thinking about how we can fill it out in a way that helps us minimize how much we need to pay. And on the flip side, we want to maximize the number of deductions that we can claim. And that, that's all well and good as long as you know, we're following the rules, we're not being dodgy about it. But it does highlight that as we fill out our tax returns like this, we are saying, I need to make sure that I look out for myself first. I need to make sure that I hold on to as much money as I can. I can't let the government get a single dollar out of me that they're not entitled to. But just imagine someone who truly loves Australia. I mean, all that Australia stands for, they love being in Australia. They're so thankful for every minute they're allowed to stay here. And they want to see their beloved country thrive. Maybe they might, at the end of their tax return, look at the estimated tax debt and say, is that all? Can I pay more? Look, I've got all this money left over that I've budgeted. Let me donate this to Australia as well because I love Australia so much. Now, it might sound a bit ridiculous to us, but isn't this exactly how we're supposed to be living for God's kingdom? When we've understood exactly what God has done for us and what entry into God's kingdom actually means? If we say that Jesus is now our king and that we no longer live for ourselves, isn't this meant to be our attitude when it comes to contributing to the kingdom? And so how much has a desire to see God's kingdom grow? How much does that shape our decisions in our families and in our lives? Things like, what suburb am I going to buy a house in or rent in? Do gospel opportunities even factor into my decisions. Now, something that I've been super encouraged about is actually the example of a, a couple in, in our church, uh, Will and Alexa. Uh, Iggy told me that when they were choosing to buy a house, they didn't choose the richest or nicest suburbs, but they chose a suburb right here in Cooper's Plains. And what was their reason? Their reason was they wanted be, to be present in the community. They wanted to be close to church so that they could uh, serve more and be involved in the community more. Isn't that w wonderful? 
But not only that, because they chose to build their own house, they could choose to build a house that would facilitate inviting people in more. They decided to get rid of an extra bedroom in order to make it more hospitable for larger groups. That's just wonderful. That's a great example of being shaped by the gospel, to allow the gospel to shape our life decisions. But it's not just where we buy our house. Sometimes it's even the budget that we set aside for renting or buying a house. Now, I remember when Sarah and I were first applying for home loans uh, many years ago, I was shocked, truly shocked at how much money the banks were willing to lend us. And then you look at what that means long term. Well, I sat down and I realized that we would be in debt for 30 or more years locked into this financial debt, which, which would have massive impacts on how we could use our money and, or not use it for God's glory. Maybe we'll be pressured to work more hours instead of serving our church. And not even that. We knew that if we borrowed this amount that the, the bank said we could borrow, then once Sarah had a baby, then I, we knew that she would be pressured to go back to work as soon as possible in order to keep up with those repayments. See, even for couples without kids yet, even for those of us who are unmarried, your decisions right now can actually carry on and impact how freely you can serve God later in life when you are married or when you, are, when you do have kids. And so for Sarah and myself, we ended up borrowing way less. We borrowed less than half of what we could. And a big part of that was knowing that that would enable us by God's grace to better serve his kingdom. That's the first question for us to ask. How can I best serve God's kingdom? And the second question to ask is this. Does this glorify God? Does this glorify God? Because being gospel-shaped goes, again, beyond the simple objective calculation of maximizing productivity for the sake of the kingdom of God, right? Rather, our ultimate purpose is in glorifying God, honoring God with not only our decisions and the outcomes that we produce, but also how we make them. Not only caring about what the goals we kick are for the kingdom, but also how we go about doing so. And so yes, we might be serving in many ministries at church, but if this is at the cost of our family at home, if our spouses and our children are bitter about not having a mom and dad at home, then does that glorify God? Or it might be meeting our goal of ten, two, two, telling two people a week about Jesus, but if we're doing it in a way that is not humble, not loving, overbearing, and not patient, if we're doing it in a way that is judgmental and not recognizing that we too are sinners in need for grace, then that doesn't glorify God, does it? Again, in all that we do, we need to reflect on whether or not we are glorifying God or not, seeking God's approval in what we do and also how we do it. But when it comes to glorifying God, an even sharper question might be this. Does my decision glorify God? This is particularly the case when the choice before us or when the choice that we've already made isn't explicitly labeled a sin, but we can actually know that I've made a choice that doesn't quite line up with the values or the principles of the gospel. Maybe it's a very, very big financial purchase for yourself or the family and you're not feeling quite easy about your motivations for doing so. Maybe it's starting a relationship with someone that 
you're not quite sure about their commitment to Jesus. Maybe it's taking up a really high-paying job, but you know that there will be further gospel impacts to how much you can serve in the long run. See, when we choose one thing over another, it might be helpful to picture being physically present with Jesus, just in your mind, and thinking about how would Jesus think? How would Jesus respond to our choice? Would we be completely comfortable knowing that Jesus would approve without any reservation? Or, as we're imagining Jesus in our presence, do we recoil, shrink back, avoiding eye contact, so to speak, in our minds, knowing that the choice that we are making is not quite right? right? So these are just two questions to help us evaluate our decisions, but more so to evaluate our own hearts when it comes to being shaped by the gospel. That we aren't simply hoping to meet minimum requirements to simply not do the things that are explicitly mentioned for us not to do. But in fact, we are seeking to grow more and more in our love and service for God every day. Now, one last principle to note about being shaped by the gospel is that we need to remember why we are to be shaped by the gospel in the first place. And that is, it comes out of this incredible love and mercy that God has first shown us. Because it is Jesus who first laid down his life for us. It is Jesus who first demonstrated and freely loved us who were undeserving. And so, of course, that means now we serve the kingdom. We now offer up our lives. We now offer up ourselves to be shaped by the gospel out of joy and not begrudgingly, right? Zacchaeus, the tax collector, understood this when Jesus welcomed him, a sinner, into his fold. He doesn't just calculate penny by penny what he owed and gave that back, but he gives half his possessions to the poor. He pays back four times the amount that he cheated. Zacchaeus understands the immense worth of being accepted into Jesus' kingdom. He understands that he was the one who first received immeasurable grace and love. And so having grasped that, it was natural for him to abundantly and generously give for the sake of the kingdom. So here's just a a quick summary of all the principles that we've talked about as we live gospel-shaped lives. First, we must place God's word as our highest authority. Second, we are not simply obeying arbitrary rules, but we are seeking to love God and grow in that love more and more each day. And third, we must remember that all we do is a response to God's grace, which he has already shown us. Right? Three simple principles to follow. And so with this, how about we try applying some of these principles to a test case? And we'll use some of the questions, or we'll use one of the questions from the Q&A that you guys submitted um, over the course of the last couple of weeks. Let's look at this question. Is a married couple, young, healthy, and fertile, obliged to have kids? Is it more selfish to not have kids or to have kids, but they're not your first priority? And so let's apply these principles that we just looked at. Uh, Firstly, the question is, what does God's word have to say about this question? And now you might think, well, that's a quick answer. There's no explicit command to say you must have kids when you get married or that it is a sin not to choose to have children. But if we've followed along to what I've been saying so far, we need to dig deeper than that, don't we? Because as we have seen, 
if we've been immersed in God's word, if, been, if we've been shaping our thinking and our minds to God's way of thinking, shaping our values on gospel values, then we can still discern how God might want us to live even when the Bible is silent on this particular issue. And so we know from God's word that children are a blessing. We see a picture of God's good design in his love being passed down in the first instance through the generations, through healthy discipleship-making family. We know that our goal, every single one of us, has been freely forgiven, right? Or we who have been freely forgiven by Jesus' sacrifice, our goal, our mission in life is now to go and make disciples of all nations. And we know that having our own children affords us this incredibly unique opportunity to be shaping the next generation, to be witnessing God's love to them, and to be discipling them every single day to love Jesus and spend eternity with their Creator and their Redeemer. And if we are as open as a community as we ought to be, as a family of God's people, we should be sharing. We should know that having children is actually a major way in we too grow in holiness and maturity as present as parents as we nurture sinful children as sinners ourselves as our hidden or not so hidden idols are attacked all the time when our kids threaten our comfort our sleep and the respect that we never knew that we we loved so much and so as we keep immersing ourselves as we listen to god's word more and more we build up this picture of the immense value of having children and so if that's the case then the next question becomes why am i even asking this question see what are the issues that i'm trying to weigh up here is there an answer that i really don't want to be hearing deep down if so why do i feel this way and again there's, there's going to be so many different answers to this i can't generalize and say the person who asked this question is uh, asking because of this reason because you might be asking because you've just never been a kid's person, right? Uh, being engaged with kids, spending time looking after them, uh, it doesn't seem natural to you. It's such a big energy drain when you have to look after kids. Oh, do I have to have kids? Or, or maybe you're just worried about how much you would miss out on if you did have kids. Maybe you've made plans to visit um, other countries you wanted to visit. Maybe you've eyed a particular job or title uh, and maybe it's the pursuit of particular hobbies. All these things you know, you know will be threatened if kids come along. Or maybe it's the thought of being responsible for another life that terrifies you. That not only are we responsible for their physical growth and well-being, but spiritual as well, as you are called to disciple them. And as we question why we ask these questions in the first place, then we can reflect. Am I seeking answers motivated by an ever-deepening love of God? Am I asking this because I want what's best for God's kingdom? Am I asking this because I want to know how I can glorify God the most? Or am I asking this because I want to know how far I can go to live life my way instead of honoring God? And in this case, there might be good reasons, right? There might be good reasons why the decision not to have kids might not be best for God's kingdom, right? If there are significant and serious health risks to having children, right? And there might be a, a thousand different reasons why you want to ask this question. Why, why am I obliged to have kids or am I obliged to have kids? 
But while the answer on the surface might be a simple, no, it's not a sin, full stop, digging a bit deeper, questioning why we are asking this question ourselves might reveal something that we need to repent of. That's scary, isn't it? It's scary because it might reveal that deep down there are motivations, fears and desires that aren't driven by the gospel, but actually driven by the worldliness of our culture, driven by our own selfishness. Or it might reveal that I am asking this question not because I'm seeking how much, how far can I go to please God, but instead wanting to know how close I can get to serving myself before it gets explicitly labelled as wrong. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that there aren't good questions or good motivations behind our questions. We might genuinely want to listen to God's voice. We want to obey. We want, but we don't understand it. We don't understand God's word. We might not understand how this particular command might be a good thing when we've been brought up in a world that keeps teaching us the opposite things. We might genuinely want to seek out how, how to live more wisely, to please God more and more in our family, in our everyday lives. That's good. Don't stop digging into God's word. Don't stop asking questions if this is your motivation. But if we have discovered that our attitudes are not aligned with the gospel, then as an aside, discovering sinful attitudes within ourselves, uh, as an aside, discovering these sinful attitudes in ourselves is something that actually should happen regularly if you're living the Christian life correctly. As we keep growing in our godliness, new sins are going to pop up. And when we do, when we do discover that our hearts are not being shaped by the gospel, then we can remind ourselves of the motivation to repent and be shaped by the gospel. That Christ has already come to give us all that we ever need and more. We don't have to be selfish anymore. That we no longer have to live for ourselves, but we are free to live to God, for God, to serve his kingdom, to live for his glory, not our own. When we have discovered our hearts are not being shaped by the gospel. Let us turn back. Let us turn back to our loving Heavenly Father who washes us clean and who has already washed us clean by the blood of His Son, Jesus. And so how do we live gospel-shaped lives? We must listen to God's voice as our ultimate authority. We must be motivated by an ever-deepening love for God. And we need to remember that being gospel-shaped is a response to the grace that God first showed us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have done everything, everything already for us in order for our greatest need to be met, for us to come into your kingdom, for us to be adopted as your children. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be a church, we would be a community that would not continue to find ways to, to be selfish, find ways to maximize our comfort and our desires, but to live sacrificially, shaped by your gospel, to look to what is best for your kingdom and how to honor you blessed. Please help us, Lord, through your spirit, transform us into the image of your son as we do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.